Hi, listeners. This will be the last week without new content on News Nerds. We have some great shows planned for you for the future, and this week I thought I'd play an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nadia Drost. And in this interview, we talk about the subject of immigration, and I think this is even more relevant as hundreds of migrants have just been removed from under the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas. So enjoy the show, and we'll be back very soon. From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, I talked to Pulitzer and Peabody Award winner Nadia Drost. She is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Before the pandemic, she and Bruno Federico documented the struggle of immigrants from around the world, crossing a dangerous stretch of jungle called the Darien Gap, many without adequate supplies. She talks to me today about the Daring Gap, what immigrants face there, how the Biden administration compares to the Trump administration regarding immigration, and more. Also, Olympian Simone Biles withdraws from the Women's Gymnastic Olympic Finals and the individual all-around gymnastics final, citing her mental health. We'll cover that story on this week's episode of News Nerds. Thank you so much for tuning in, and stay tuned because this is News Nerds. I'm your host, Ezra Graham. Here's my interview with Nadia Drost. She is a special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and before the pandemic, she and Bruno Federico documented the struggle of migrants from around the world crossing a dangerous and lawless stretch of jungle called the Darien Gap, many without adequate supplies. She talks to me in this interview about the Darien Gap, what immigrants face there, how the Biden administration compares to the Trump administration regarding immigration policies, and even more. Nadia Drost is a Pulitzer Prize and Peabody Award-winning journalist. She's a PBS NewsHour special correspondent reporting from Latin America, and she joins us now over the phone. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ezra, for having me. So what is the Darien Gap? So the Darien Gap is basically a huge uh, territory of of jungle. It's both mountainous and swampy, and it's found between the border. It basically straddles the border of Colombia and Panama. And there is a Pan-American highway that goes from the tip of Argentina all the way north to Alaska. And there is only one breach in that Pan-American highway. And that is precisely between Colombia and Panama. The highway basically stops for 66 miles. And that gap is called the Darien Gap. And so it's a region that is very sparsely populated by indigenous groups. um, And there are no roads. And so the only way to get from Colombia to Panama is either by walking through the jungles of the Darien Gap or via a boat because on the northern end of the Darien Gap is the Atlantic Ocean and on the southern end is the Pacific. So that isthmus is, is really skinny and surrounded by ocean, so that's another way to, to get around it. So you traveled through the Darien Gap with a man named Bruno Federico. 
So what roles did you both play in producing your report that you uh, eventually published for the PBS NewsHour? Sure. So it actually started um, with yet another team member called Carlos Villalon. And Carlos is a Chilean photographer who has been living in Bogota, Colombia for many years. And he's been photographing the Darien Gap for almost a decade. And Bruno and I, as, as journalists and also as a couple, had been living in Colombia. Carlos was a good friend of ours. And so he really helped us basically decide how we should be approaching the trip to do it as safely as possible. And Carlos had already traveled the the Darien Gap several times, and so he had suggestions of smuggler guides who were trustworthy, who we could go on with this trip. So our team was basically myself and Bruno, uh, as well as Carlos. Carlos acted in a producing capacity, and he was also a photographer for the California Sunday Magazine piece. And Bruno and I together, we planned the series that we were going to do for the PBS News Hour, taking place in Colombia and Panama, as well as Mexico. And Bruno and I really shared a lot of the producing, a lot of the um, you know, the kind of a logistical arranging beforehand. There were a lot of conversations between us with Carlos, uh, our PBS producers in D.C. And then I was also going to be writing a feature story for the California Sunday Magazine. And Bruno uh, did the photography uh, along with Carlos for for that story, too. So it was very much a, a team effort with, you know, different people playing different roles. In the series, you you notice that there's many different immigrants from many different places around the globe, and you share where some of those people fly in from. So where did the immigrants that you traveled with come from? It was really astounding, Ezra, to see just how diverse uh, this migrant population was. So if, you know, you can imagine this really isolated jungle where basically you're you're not seeing anybody and and if you do they're going to be indigenous inhabitants and suddenly you know over the course of of several days we kept on seeing one migrant group after another from many different countries uh, some of them were from south asia so we walked with a group of pakistanis Sri Lankans, as well as Bangladeshis, and a lot of Central Africans. So we we walked with a group of Cameroonians, and we also came across quite a few migrants from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Angola. I would say that the the majority of migrants, and the statistics back this up too, are actually from Haiti. And they don't come directly from Haiti. They've been living in Chile or Brazil for many years. A lot of them moved uh, from Haiti to South America after Haiti's terrible 2010 earthquake. And many more came to South America after that. 
to find jobs, to find a way to live, and that became far more difficult because of a change in governments in Chile and Brazil, and they couldn't get work permits anymore, and so they started moving northwards. So what I thought was so fascinating about this place is that, you know, in this very remote, un, practically uninhabited area, you can really kind of uh, get a barometer on what is happening around the world because each of these people and each of these nationalities have stories about why they had to flee, what pushed them to leave, and you can really get a sense of what's happening in different countries around the world that are, are forcing people to to flee their their homes. And so that's why it was you know, really interesting to be able to learn about different conflicts that are happening around the world, different kind of push factors in displacement from climate change to extreme poverty uh, to political persecution in different pockets around the world. Did you meet any indigenous people along the, the Darien Gap when you were traveling? So we didn't for, I, w I would say we, we did for the first uh, day or two as we were trying to basically leave the last towns before one really enters the most isolated part of the, of the Darien Gap. And there was an indigenous community that was very helpful in pointing us in the right direction and trying to help us through. But then for seven days, we didn't see anybody except for migrants and then we eventually got to an indigenous community and I would say you know we started seeing people a mere half hour walk away so for for a full week we really didn't see any permanent inhabitants of of the area. What were some of the most common reasons for immigrants that you were traveling with to leave their countries? So most of the ones who we traveled with, uh, I would say, from Africa were leaving because of either conflict in their country or political persecution. I learned a lot about the conflict in Cameroon, which is one that I think is really underreported around the world. But basically, there is, you know, an ongoing armed conflict between the dominant Francophone regions in government and the Anglophone regions. And there have been a lot of really severe human rights abuses uh, with, you know, the Cameroonian army burning villages, massacring people who live in the Anglophone regions and uh, accusing pretty much everybody of being an independence fighter. And so that has caused so many people to flee because it's become very untenable to live in the Anglophone region. So at that time, there were a lot of Cameroonians coming through. And I would say that uh, the other major reason was extreme poverty that really didn't allow people to be, to be able to live uh, anything remote to a decent life and that was definitely the case with with the Haitians and as I mentioned they had been able to to you know work legally in Chile and Brazil and get by but changes in immigration policies there meant that 
they weren't uh, able to get work permits anymore. They were being exploited at their jobs and being paid such a paltry wage that they simply couldn't couldn't survive anymore. Um, and that's what prompted them to to look northwards. Many of the immigrants that you traveled with, uh, they had kids. Did you talk to their kids and what they were thinking as they were being, you know, walked through this jungle without food for days? You're right. A lot of them were really small children under, you know, the age of five years old in most cases. And uh, a lot of them spoke different languages that I didn't speak, like Portuguese and Haitian Creole. And so I wasn't able to talk personally uh, with very many of them, but I was able to spend several days with a group of Haitian children and their parents. And, you know, they were incredibly brave. They had to, you know, walk up these really steep, muddy slopes, uh, cross rivers where the current, you know, for a child was often above their head and their parents had to carry them across these rivers. It was really, really dangerous. There were so many risks on this trip. I think that from a kid's perspective, the first few days, it almost seemed like a bit of an adventure. And then, you know, a lot of these families started running out of food and many of of their parents started going hungry and saving their food for their kids. But then, you know, all of their food ran out and then the children started to get really hungry. And so, you know, as we all know, when we're feeling hungry, that's when, um, you know, everything starts to feel a lot harder. So you could really see in the kids' moods that it just got to be so much harder to find the energy to keep on going on 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 this trek. Um, but it was amazing that, you know, they had to keep on walking. They had no choice, and so they did. I think these kids were incredibly brave. I don't think they were aware of the same risks that their parents were. There were a lot of armed robberies on the trail at the time, for example, and that's something that, um, you know, luckily the kids who weren't robbed weren't aware of at all. But we did hear about groups of migrants with children who were armed, uh, sorry, who were robbed at um, at knife point or gunpoint. And, you know, that's got to be absolutely terrifying for for a child. And when they arrive in Panama, they there is no stability for them. So, you know, they still haven't arrived at anywhere remote to a home where they can feel safe. And so I think that for for children to have, you know, for months and months of traveling and and suffering along this trail and not knowing, you know, what's going to happen next when they're going to reach a safe place, that's got to be really, really difficult. Um, there was one family from Angola who we were trying to, you know, set out with at the beginning of the trail. They had three children and we became separated and we basically, you know, um, found each other again once we were on the Panama side, all staying um, by a camp for migrants. And it was terribly sad that when we came, you know, when we met up with the father again, he only had two of his three children with him. And he had had a nine-year-old daughter who he was trying to help across a river that they had to cross. And his hands lost their grip. 
and his daughter floated downstream and she eventually drowned. And so that was terribly sad. You could see, you know, this family was really destroyed. The Their remaining kids were about uh, seven years old and a baby. And, you know, they were very sad. So you are reporting on immigrants and traveling with these immigrants that may not have eaten in days. And if you have extra food, do you help uh, nourish them and feed them? So this was a decision that, um, you know, we talked about pretty much every day, Bruno, Carlos, and, and myself. And in on the one hand, it seemed like a difficult ethical decision to make initially because as journalists um you know we aren't supposed to engage in you know giving gifts to people or giving any sort of um perceived reward to people for participating in our journalistic reports but we felt really strongly that this was a really extreme situation where some people were you know possibly on the verge of of dying and we we decided you know we are humans first i think that we would have had a really difficult time living with ourselves if we hadn't shared our food with families after they had run out of it um and that that would have made us feel incredibly uncomfortable and we were in a situation where we were basically embedded with families of of migrants and um, I can't really imagine, you know, a situation where, you know, 35 to 40 migrants wouldn't have had anything to eat and would just be kind of watching over us as, as we ate. And so that seemed like a very inhumane approach to, to you know, walking with these migrants. And in a sense, we were... Um, we had different missions, but we were taking a, a trip together. And, of course, we all wanted that everybody made it. And so we decided, you know, once once the migrants had run out of food, uh, we also shared our food with them. We didn't really have very much extra food, and we weren't expecting to come across so many migrants in such dire situations. And as I mentioned, you know, the last, I would say, probably four to five days, we were traveling with um, a group of migrants that kept on kind of growing. We kept on kind of collecting them along the way, in a sense. And so there were a lot of mouths to feed. So, you know, by, I would say, two days before we reached our destination, we had all run run out of food um, at that point. But I'm happy to say that, you know, we we all made it. And that was, that was you know, the important thing at, at that moment. So is there any food that can be found off of the trail in the jungle that may be foraged while you're walking? There really wasn't, you know. Um, we never saw any edible food except for it was about like a day before we arrived at an indigenous community or maybe a half day away we saw um somebody had had cultivated a small crop of plantains and that was that was really that was really it but you know migrants are really aware of the need to try to 
find find food and there were rumors you know they had heard oh you know um you'll cross this river and then there'll be a mango grove or then you'll find bananas and apparently some migrants you know had found mangoes and bananas but those were those were cultivated um by communities and so they were only found you know at the end of the trail uh within a day of of the communities otherwise you know unless you knew how to hunt um, there really wasn't anything else to eat except, I will say, you know, we were we were walking along rivers all the time, and uh, some of the migrants that we traveled with had brought fishing hooks, and they tried fishing. They they caught very few fish because, unfortunately, the the water levels when we went were really raging. It rained so much that it caused. The river levels to to surge and the water was really turbulent and so it made fishing you know that much more that much more difficult so they didn't really get a great catch but i was you know really impressed that that some migrants especially ones from bangladesh where you know a lot of bangladeshis fish because there's so many waterways uh, they had thought ahead of time to to bring fishing hooks so you've told us about the shortage of food that you had. Um, what else was dangerous about the Darien Gap? So I would say it kind of falls into two categories. I would say animals and humans. Um, those are the two categories that pose, you know, the biggest threats aside from the, the terrain itself. So the terrain is really treacherous. You know, I mentioned very steep mountains, Um there's mudslides, there's, you know, rivers that you constantly have to cross and they're, they're, you know, they're the height, their height and the current changes all the time. And so when migrants sleep, they're, they're looking for a place, you know, close to the riverbank and they're not aware of just how much the river levels can change overnight due to rainfall. And so, it's fairly common for migrants to be swept away in the middle of the night, you know, while they're sleeping in a tent because the river level has risen so much that it just takes their tents away while they're in them. So another huge risk is that people get injured on the trail and uh, they can hardly walk anymore. Um, You know, maybe they sprain an ankle or break a limb and they're the groups that they travel with just, can't really help them. It's quite impossible to carry people out of, of the Darien Gap. Of course, that depends on their size, too. So a lot of people are left behind and they, you know, they eventually just starve to death in, in the jungle. So I would say that, you know, personal injury that's a result of the terrain is is a big risk. And then there are animals that uh, that are dangerous to to humans. So one common cause of, of death is actually from venomous snake bites. Snakes are, um, you know, really pose uh, a, a real danger to anybody walking through the Darien Gap. And then we had heard about packs of wild boars um, that, you know, have attacked people before. We didn't see any, we didn't hear any, but we had heard that in the past groups of people had come under attack by by boars. And then I would say that unfortunately, you know, the other really, um, the other, you know, 
big threat along uh, along this trail are humans themselves. So unfortunately, there are you know local populations. There are armed bandits. Um, some of them are aligned uh, with paramilitary groups operating in the region, who who basically prey on migrants because they know how vulnerable they are and they also know that they are carrying all of their valuables to be able to make it on the rest of their trip. So um, many, many migrants along this trail will encounter armed bandits at some point, you know, during the week that they're walking through the jungle. And what surprised me the most is that, you know, these armed robbers won't only rob migrants of valuables like their their money or perhaps any jewelry that they might be carrying with them but they'll also rob them of their most basic necessities so their tents and their clothing and even their food and that's why so many migrants you know really become destitute on the trail because they are left with literally nothing. Uh, We came across a group of Bangladeshis who had been robbed four times on on the trail. Uh, They were all men and they had nothing except for the shirts and, and shorts that they were wearing. And a lot of women who we came across who had been robbed were also sexually abused on the trail. Um, And so I would say that, you know, that unfortunately, has kind of become the biggest risk for migrants making this trip today. Once immigrants are past the Darien Gap and they're past all the horrors that you just mentioned, what do they face then uh, from the law enforcement, border patrol, or the governments that they may face, you know, wanting to know why they're there and if they're uh, illegally there or anything like that? That's a really good question. You know, a lot of the migrants, when they arrive in Panama, they've just, you know, they feel like they've they've come through what's the most difficult part of their journey. And I think that physically it is. But they were really, really shocked to find out that there were so many obstacles ahead of them that had to do with immigration and migration policies. So once they reached the camp in, in Panama, um, you know, Panama wasn't allowing migrants in legally. They weren't allowing them to transit through if they showed up at the border with their passport. But once migrants were illegally in the country and had come out of the Darien, then Panama has decided, okay, we're going to try to find, you know, an organized and safe way to basically get migrants from you know, the end of the Darien Gap over to the next border with Costa Rica. What they decided to do, and this was very much under pressure from the U.S. government and in collaboration with them, is they are carrying out security vetting of all of those migrants. So if you're a migrant and you're coming out of the Darien Gap, um, you arrive at this migrant camp, the only way to continue on in your journey is you have to submit all of your biometric information. So your fingerprints get scanned, um, your irises get scanned, obviously your passports as well. And basically, Panamanian authorities, in collaboration with American immigration authorities, 
run your name and all your biometric information through criminal international databases um, to ensure that they're not allowing anybody with a criminal or terrorist path uh, through this this part of Central America and to reach the American, um, well, the border between uh, the U.S. And, and Mexico. So when I hear about, you know, people you know, members of Congress going to the southern border and speaking with Border Patrol agents there who are surprised that, you know, there are lots of groups of migrants that are kind of considered unconventional. They're not from South America, but they're from India and Sri Lanka and Congo. Um, And they're surprised about this. I think that surprise is unwarranted because American authorities actually know you know exactly who is coming um, because of, of this security vetting, but that security vetting can take anywhere from a week to sometimes you know four months. I met migrants from uh, Muslim majority countries like Pakistan, um, Yemen, who were waiting uh, up to four or five months in you know this very desolate, impoverished migrant camp until they could continue their journey. So that was one obstacle uh, for them. And then, you know, like other migrants going through Central America, they have to figure out how to get through those countries. And and in most cases, they are crossing illegally. But I would say that the biggest obstacle that they face is actually once they get to Mexico, And at that point, they're feeling like, you know, they're almost at their destination of the U.S., but that's where they get really, really stuck in southern Mexico, because what they find is they they kind of come across a version of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, but in southern Mexico. And not physically, there's not a physical wall like there exists um, at the U.S. border, except in terms of policies Mexican authorities were under so much pressure from American authorities to prevent migrants from making their way north that they've basically surrounded southern Mexican towns and migration routes with immigration checkpoints. And it's virtually impossible for migrants to to get through them. And so what's that what that has created is a situation where, you know, there are migrant families living on the streets in towns across southern Mexico for months and months trying to figure out a way to leave these cities that are ringed by checkpoints. And they're absolutely destitute. Some of them are living in in tents in the street. Um, They have no way to make a living, of course. Um, And they're simply not allowed to leave. And so what that has meant is that it's really pushed them towards hiring smugglers because they're the only they're kind of like the last resort um and so most people that you know are are coming through mexico um it's it's a result of of smugglers and that as we know is very very dangerous and i think you know we've seen for years and years just you know that the perils that migrants who travel with smugglers across mexico often linked with with drug trafficking cartels face. And so what we've seen is that the the more that, you know, the government tries to constrict migration policies, 
it really pushes migrants into the hands of smugglers and it enriches those smugglers. But I would say that, you know, more importantly, it really endangers um, the migrants even more and it gives them, you know, virtually no safe ways to, to reach the border. You documented some of the immigrants that made it into the United States. You had a piece uh, about some of them that were living in Maryland. Um, How many of those families that you documented have made it into the United States? So I wouldn't be able to give you a a percentage because I haven't been able to keep in touch with all of them. But um, I would say that of those who I have been able to keep in touch with, all of them made it into the U.S., but several of them were deported once they, you know, had spent several months in ICE detention. So all of the ones who I kept in touch with made it to the U.S. border. They were all, you know, immediately sent into ICE detention facilities, and some of them spent, you know, three months, others spent seven months in in these detention centers. One Haitian family that uh, Bruno and I kept in touch with, they had a child who was born in the detention center, and yet they were still deported back to Haiti, um, where, you know, as we know now, there's just such extreme political unrest and violence. There were other Cameroonians who were deported to Cameroon, where there is still a severe armed conflict going on. And one of the Pakistanis in the group of four Pakistanis who I followed, he was deported to Pakistan. So in, I would say that in, in each group, you know, within each nationality, there are people deported, and the rest of them are living in the U.S. And I think that, you know, the ones who have family members, those are the ones who are, are doing the best because they have a roof over their heads, and all of them are going through asylum proceedings that are really, really backlogged, and it's meant that they have been waiting a year for work permits. And until then, you know, they have no way to make a living. And so they really have to rely on either friends or extended family. And so the ones who have managed to stay in homes with extended family um, are, are making it because they're being looked after until, you know, they can they can start working legally. And some of them now do have jobs um, with work permits. And, you know, they're working at places like Walmart, stocking shelves, um, another few who I've kept in touch with um, are involved in uh, food delivery services and um, but there there are you know a couple who really struggled because they didn't have anybody that they could stay with so one Congolese man who I kept in touch with was basically bouncing around from one shelter to another in Austin, Texas. And we have to remember that, you know, when they arrived here, this was during the pandemic. So many cities were locked down and it was so difficult for them to find places to stay, let alone find work in in a pandemic. So that Congolese man was incredibly worried because he, he wasn't able to work yet. And so he couldn't make a living and he had no way of paying paying rent and so he was staying in 
a shelter for migrants, but they were only letting migrants stay, you know, a maximum, I think, of six weeks. And so he was looking for, you know, another place to to live. So a lot of them, you know, have have come across great challenges once they've eventually made it to the U.S. to to being able to start a, a life here and to be able to survive. And lastly, how do you think uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration compare on their handling of immigration issues? Well, I'll just say really briefly that I, th- I think there is an impression that that Biden is, you know, kind of letting everybody into the country because there are more apprehensions at the border. But when we look carefully at the statistics, we have to keep in mind that apprehensions just refers to people who have been caught by uh, border patrol. It doesn't necessarily refer to people coming across the border who haven't, you know, their journeys haven't been intervened by border patrol. And in past years, apprehensions have been a lot lower, but the number of people coming across the border without coming across border patrol have been a lot higher. So I think that we have to, you know, look carefully at, at the statistics and what they're telling us. Um, So it is true that far more people are being apprehended at the border. And while Biden has made a lot of efforts to try to get through the immigration backlog, and he's canceled a lot of the executive orders that Trump put in place to expel uh, migrants and asylum seekers and to make it virtually impossible for asylum seekers to to seek asylum and to claim their legal right to seek asylum. There is one major decree that Biden has not reversed that Trump put into place, and that's called Title 42. And that was put in place as a result of the pandemic. And what it basically says is that, you know, anybody, any, you know, migrants or asylum seekers arriving at the southern border um, can be turned away and expelled back into Mexico because of public health Uh, safety concerns uh, because of COVID considerations. And so that's kind of been the premise that the Biden administration has based most of, you know, the, the, the pushback of, of migrants that they've, the expelling of migrants that they've been carrying out. Now, if we, if we talk to public safety experts about the risks of COVID coming across the borders, is this really necessary? You know, it appears that the threat of COVID coming from from migrants crossing the southern border uh, is actually very minuscule. And there are so many, um, you know, measures that could be taken into place in terms of testing and, and now vaccinations that could allow for migrants to not pose a public safety risk um, and still claim their legal right to to asylum. I know that Biden, you know, is coming under increasing pressure to to terminate Title 42. But I think that the concern is that if if, you know, he does, that that might act as an incentive for more migrants to come to the border if they know that they're going to be 
allowed to seek asylum there. But I think we have to remember that, you know, most most people when they leave their 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 countries under such dire conditions, um, it's really because they they have no other choice. And to to make this kind of a journey, I think, really shows a high degree of desperation. And policies, uh, you know, don't uh, don't always deter people from leaving their homes when they have to leave their their homes. So I think that you know, Title Forty Two, um, in relationship to COVID, um, has meant that the vast majority of migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border are actually expelled, um, except for unaccompanied minors and certain families. And that's something that I think uh, has kind of been lost in the conversation when when we talk about apprehensions of immigrants along, along the border. And we have to keep in mind that, you know, Biden has chosen to keep in place Title 42, which is responsible for the vast majority of, of um, migrants being expelled. Uh, back into Mexico. Well, Nadia Drost, thank you so much for talking to me on News Nerds. It's been a real pleasure, Ezra. Thank you so much for your great questions. Nadia Drost is a special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and she talked to us this week about her series on immigration through the Darien Gap. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps our ratings. Another way to listen is by listening on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KGVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. Until next week, bye-bye.